The Gospel reading from Mark 1. The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. At once, at once the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and angels attended him. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. Good morning. Um, just real quick uh, check in from Zoom. How, you guys hear me okay? Can I get a thumbs? Oh, that's great. Great, great, great. Thank you. Um, it's been a really long time since I've given a homily or delivered a sermon. The last time I did this uh, or something like this, I was 15. Our church uh, growing up had a youth Sunday where the middle school and the high schoolers would put on a church service uh, once a year. And uh, that time I did my sermon on the verse, do not be conformed to this world, but transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And that's Romans 12, 2, as you all know, and I certainly didn't have to look up this morning. Um, and I had this little transformer toy that I transformed, because I remember I was 15, that I transformed from a tank, which was the metaphor for war and violence, into a robot, which was a metaphor for something that I don't remember, but probably nothing good, and the whole thing was terrible. Um, and this isn't me being um, falsely modest, it's me being uh, appropriately modest, because I know this is true, because a buddy of mine did a homily right after mine, and his was actually good, and what I will brag about is that I know the difference. Um, long story short, Tim Wolf, Timmy at the time, uh, he grew up to be a Presbyterian minister and I grew up to be an accountant. But Tim's not here today, and I am. Um, fortunately, I'm here uh, without any props, uh, so my metaphors may be ham-fisted, but they won't be accompanied with a, a tiny toy that you won't see or understand. Um, and I do have some detailed notes from Brian uh, that I have added to, so anything that is terrible and offensive that's almost certainly brian and the wonderful parts are the things that i added over the course of the last few days um so i'm not so much a guest speaker 
uh, or a guest pastor who comes in and changes everyone's lives with new insights as much as a substitute teacher who comes in and delivers the lecture for the regular teacher and continues the curriculum when what you really wanted to see was the cart with the TV and the VCR roll in and then you get to watch the bridge over River Kwai even though you're currently studying the Peloponnesian War. And I'd be, I'd be remiss if I didn't at least mention that some of us are together today. And I'm going to try to make it through this as sometimes I'm not able to without getting incredibly emotional. Um, but we're really excited about it. Uh, even if it is small, and even if we are socially distanced, and even if I can't pick up somebody's baby and walk around with a baby and make my wife jealous because I'm holding a baby and she's not, and we would all love to be together, to sing and pray and worship and hold babies, and I would love to actually spend the next 10 or 15 minutes or so talking about how irresponsible and sinful that would be to put in town church as an institution ahead of the people in this community, to get publicity or donations or even just more attendance from people who are sick of going to church on Zoom by subjecting our people to suffering and disease. Because that's happening, but not here. And if you listen closely, I'm not going to be talking about that, but you'll hear it. And you should listen closely because this is going to be pretty short. And we're all going to talk about this. I'm going to talk about this with you all from three words in that verse, which is all in verse one. So sorry, uh, Twyla, you had to read a good bit more than verse one, but we're only talking about three words. But before we start talking about that, let us pray together. Father, we thank you for this beautiful sunshiny day and for the sounds of being outside for birds and chainsaws and conversations and for the people who are in their homes today watching and participating on Zoom. We thank you for technology that allows us to be together in any way that we can. We thank you for masks. We thank you for wide open spaces. We thank you for the love that you have shown this church and its people. We thank you for the love that's inside this church. And I ask that you are with us the rest of the day, the rest of the service as we learn and sing and have communion together, even though we're apart. And I ask that, uh, that you help me through uh, this. It's been 34 years and uh, guide my words and Brian's words let them be your words. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So we're talking about three words. All in the first verse. Let me read that first verse again. It's from uh, Mark 1. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. And the first word I want to talk about um, is not in this translation except as good news, but it's gospel. And few words are more important in all of Scripture because it's sort of this key word that unlocks the meaning of the whole Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, and yet few words have such a meaning that's so locked in the historical context. And a lot of times we don't stop and look at words like gospel, 
because we've heard them all our lives, because we feel like we get it. And there's often this direct correlation between the complexity or difficulty of a term or an idea, especially theological ones, and a certainty that we know exactly what it means. And I grew up in, in Alabama, and so we use the word gospel a lot, but we used it as in place of or in front of the word truth. Something's the gospel, it's the truth. Even though that's not really quite it. Something can be the truth without being the gospel, right? It's the good news at its heart. And in, in Mark's day, this was not limited to the private religious sphere, this word gospel. To Mark and his hearers, gospel meant something much more comprehensive and much more obviously political. And to us, it's a pretty mild, sanitary, religious term, kind of alongside instructions of, about individual salvation. But to Mark, it means news of victory, particularly and almost specifically in military battles. So they would have heard the word gospel used, Mark and, and the people listening to his words would have heard the word gospel to rally a nationalistic fervor about Roman military victories in this far-flung colonial empire. It would be news about crushing insurrections. It would be the news of conquering new territories. This was the gospel. This was the good news of empire. But it also wasn't a purely political term that Mark made into a religious one because military conquests were religious triumphs. At least according to Roman propaganda, Roman news, Caesar's victories were gospel. They were good news. So by Mark attaching the word gospel to Jesus, he was co-opting the whole mythology of Caesar. He was deconsecrating the most powerful man in the world who generally demanded cultic religious devotion of the masses. So Mark isn't describing a new religious movement so much as he's describing an act of sedition. Repenting and believing this gospel could get you imprisoned, could get you killed. The second word is Messiah. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. And then Mark's not only taking dead aim at the throne of the most powerful man in the world, dead aim at Caesar by saying this man, this Jesus, is the Messiah, but he's also taking a swipe at the whole mythology of Roman exceptionalism. And he's also taking aim at the king, Herod, and the entire Jewish religious system that in his day is in collusion with the imperial power of Rome. And he's declaring war, and here Brian has the word war in, in all caps. He's declaring war, not only with the very idea of empire, but war against an entire religion in thrall 
to it and co-opted by it. Now, maybe war should be in, in quotes um, because of Jesus, right? Because again and again in Mark, Jesus refuses the title of Messiah. And this is not because it wasn't true of him. It's because he knew what that word carried with it. He knew that there was a common understanding that people would hear that word and think this is tied to a military overthrow. And we, we, we think Jesus, in taking on this title willingly, especially at the beginning of his mission, his service, he would be granting div divine assent to holy war, not just then, but, but forever. Messiah is this, it's this word that's intention, right? Because it is an appropriate title for Jesus. And his rule is not otherworldly. It would be easy for him to say, not on this world, I'm Messiah for a, for a different time, for a different world. But his, his rule is in this world. As we heard in Isaiah today, I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nation. And that is a very physical, political, social, embodied message. Not one of heaven to come, but one of earth. But his vision is not justice coming through violence. It's not coming through the only way that people knew in those times, and sometimes in our own time, to have justice come through. Not through the traditional view of a man on a throne surrounded by the bodies of his vanquished enemies, but with swords being beaten into plowshares. God's justice undermines the throne of Herod and Caesar, which is held up by violence. And it supersedes the thrones held even by good kings and good rulers. It undermines those that would use religion to prop up empire, to enslave or oppress others, to push an economic or political or religious system that makes certain people less valuable than others. Human beings made in the image of the Most High God used to gain power and money and pride. Empire, you see, creates prostitutes and then stones them for adultery. But Jesus sees a woman caught in the act of adultery and she, he also sees that she's alone. Where's the man that she was caught with? She is disposable to empire. He might not be, but not to Jesus. Empire creates the tax collector, the enforcer of Caesar's laws, and sets him against his community and his people, not to help them, not to protect them, but to protect the power of the empire. And Jesus sees him too and brings him towards the good news and away from the empire. Because even the rich, the powerful, even those that have been made rich and powerful through abuse and oppression, God longs to be close to them. He longs for them, for us, 
to be made whole in him. But that doesn't happen without change. And not just a change in the mind, and not even just a change in the heart, but a change in the very way we act, the very way we respond to each other, the very way we live. Because Messiah is not merely a spiritual idea. His reign becomes incarnate through the work of the Spirit in the lives of everyday citizens, everyday people, everyday Christians, choosing to forsake their own riches, forsake their own power, or as we'd say today, forsake their own privilege for the lives of the lost and the least. And the third word here is beginning. The beginning of the gospel is a callback to Genesis, the beginning of all things. Mark is casting Jesus as a new beginning. Mark starts his, the, the gospel with, with the word arch, arche, I don't know. <laughs> the same word that opens the Greek translation of the Old Testament in the Septuagint, uh, which you probably know, but it's the in the beginning God created the heavens and earth. And here it is, this is the beginning of the gospel, the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. And it's a regeneration of salvation and its history. It's a reboot of God's redemptive purpose, including heaven, including the spiritual realm, but including the earth, the physical place of life and work and family and politics and media. And this regeneration is a recreation, a recreation of what was done in Genesis through Jesus Christ. So the conventional ways that we've learned to read and apply the gospel isn't wrong. It's just limited. Because Mark here is, is still telling you about unbelievably, explosively important good news that God knows you by name. He knows your face. He knows your happiness. He knows your sin and your sorrow. And that his ever-gracious love has been granted to you personally and eternally. And that Jesus' death and resurrection means that you and I have been forever liberated from the world of sin and death and in baptism reborn into a whole new world. And all of this is very personal, but it's not individualistic and it's not private. And this new world isn't imaginary or only the future, only when heaven comes down to earth and there's a new city, or only when we die and are reborn forever with God. It's a new way of being human right now. And it reverberates from individual changed lives and from changed communities. So even the work done by Jesus and the disciples, we talk about Jesus doing it all and having completed that work. But it's only the beginning. It's the beginning of God releasing us from captivity to kings and leaders, releasing us 
for our own sake, for our happiness, for our joy in life. And it's liberation of all of humanity from a closed system where our hope is placed on terrestrial, earthly things and on human beings. And it's a beginning of a life infused with justice, the justice of God, his sweetness, and his love and care. But it's also a way that leads to the cross, the way of self-sacrifice, a way that tears down empires of power, including and even especially the ones we benefit from, as well as the small ones we create on our daily lives to elevate our needs and happiness above others. Because at the most fundamental level, that's how the gospel resists and overturns the ways of the world. And that is what Jesus has done for you and for me. Let us pray. Father, help us to look out into the world, not as a place where the powerful rule and the weak are oppressed, but as a place where we can be active in changing the way that the people that you made in your image, every single one, is respected and loved and cared for. That the powerful aren't just thrown from their thrones and replaced by another who would be just as powerful and just as oppressive but that all are lifted up as bearers of your image. Help us to look into our own lives where we create little empires where we are protected and safe and others are kept at arm's length. Even in this time of masks and staying six feet away from each other, and protecting our health and our well-being. Help us to find ways to bring others into our lives and for us to be part of others' lives. Guide us, protect us, and show us your wisdom and grace and love. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.